Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. Uh, I'm Princeton Junior Tiger Gao. Uh, here with me today in the studio is Jan Vogler. He is a postdoc uh, research associate of, uh, in the political economy of good government at University of Virginia, and he is an associate of the Corruption Lab on Ethics, Accountability, and Rule of Law. So he researches about the political economy of European Union, uh, political legacy, public institutions, uh, state capacities. We'll be talking about this range of uh, issues, uh, and he's also giving a lunch talk at Princeton today titled, Does Development Aid Improve State Capacity About Poland? So it will be a very interesting conversation. So thanks so much for uh, joining me today. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. Uh, and also here with me in the studio is a uh, one of our uh, beloved and talented uh, research associates on our team, Bailey Ransom. She is a sophomore and uh, she's actually from the Netherlands. Uh, and uh, she came up to me a couple months ago or weeks ago, uh, had the idea about expanding a, a segment on Policy Punchline about Europe, European Union. Uh, so hopefully we'll have more of those conversations uh, following in the next weeks and months to come uh, with Bailey. Uh, so thanks so much for, for joining me in the studio today, Bailey. Thanks so much for having me, Tiger. I'm excited to be here. And thanks, Jan, for joining us as well. Thank awesome. you. Uh, so why don't we just begin with a very broad question. We always start this, begin with a little bit of our guest background. Uh, what are your main research interests? What are some of the projects you're currently working on? Yeah. So in general, I look at political economy. And what we mean by that is the interaction of states and markets. And what I do is I usually look at political economy with a deep historical perspective. And that means I, I like to go back to the roots of things. I like to go back to historical events and look at how have they shaped outcomes in the present day. And I try to trace it back to um, the, these deep historical processes. Uh, within political economy, there are a couple of areas that I work on, public administration, for example. That is often seen as something that is not super interesting. But I think that we underestimate how important public administration is in our lives. I think that it plays an enormously big role for how societies uh, work. I think that it has a big impact on our wealth, on, our, on the fortunes of societies. And I try to make it exciting by connecting it to topics such as imperialism that I think are broadly interesting to a large number of people. I also like to look at competition as an organizational principle. And I think that modern market economies and modern uh, democracies are based on competition as an organizational principle. I think it's a fascinating principle. And finally, I look at the European Union and its predecessor organizations, such as the European Community. And I look at how it is organized. And it's a unique supranational organization. It's really fascinating to look at that. Um, you also asked me about a recent research project. So one of the things I've I've done recently, I've worked on recently, is actually something that is of contemporary relevance because we have a coronavirus outbreak. Um, I look at uh, the impact of the Black Death, the long-term impact on the organization of democracy in Central Europe, in Germany specifically. Um, so in the in the 14th century, there was a major outbreak of the Black Death and killed about one third of the population at the time. Um, that had a big social impact and I look at the long run consequences of that. Uh, because you're in Princeton today giving a lunch talk titled Does Development Aid Improve a State Capacity? And I suppose that kind of talk mm -hmm. uh, will also bring in all those areas of your research from mm -hmm. public institution to political economy to... That's right. 
Uh, would you mind giving us a quick uh, overview of, of your talk? Sure, absolutely. So um, what happened after the fall of the Soviet Union was you had a lot of Eastern European states which initially did not belong to the Eastern Bloc anymore. They also did not belong to the European Union yet, right? And uh, they wanted to join the EU, but in terms of living standards, they were far below the other EU countries. And so when joining the EU, the EU supported them in, in different ways through the so-called structural funds. And th these were giant sums of money flowing into Eastern Europe. This was in the case of the country that I look at, Poland, up to now more than 17 billion euros. So it's, it's really vast sums of money. And what I look at is, did that have an impact on the capacity of local governments? And the reason why I look at that is that in many cases, these local governments were the governments that um, not only had to apply for this aid, but that also administered its implementation. And you would think that when you deal with such vast sums of money, you have to apply for them, then you have to administer them, that that requires the building of additional state capacity. And so in this research project, um, my co-author Pavel Charas and I, we looked at does this level of EU funding, does variation in that level of funding impact local state capacity? Uh, and, and I think your finding was that it does or it doesn't? It does in some ways. So we sent different inquiries. This was actually a very large-scale project in the sense that we inquired 2,000, more than 2,400 local governments, and we sent different inquiries. And one of the things we wanted to look at is are they able to efficiently address these inquiries? And by efficiently, I also mean we sent them different types, right? And you would think that when they look at different kinds of inquiries, they must assess their priority to in a different way, right? So some inquiries they might prioritize over others. And what we see is that the municipalities that have very high level of EU funding, that they are very effective at assessing these inquiries and that they respond very differently to these two types of inquiries. So I think that's a sign of internal efficiency. And so one thing we were uh, discussing earlier is how do you think your research specifically in Poland and then also how it applied to the rest of the EU, how mm. does it fit into contemporary debates with other scholars surrounding development aid and its yeah. effectiveness? So there, this is a giant literature with a lot of different subsets. Um, and what I'm looking at specifically is only the effect on state capacity. And there are a couple of contributions. There are some that we are compatible with. So the results we find are compatible with those insights. So for example, there's a contribution that says that governance aid specifically has a positive effect. And what the EU does is very much governance aid. It tries to improve uh, the state of local infrastructure, for example. It tries to improve the state of uh, local public services. And all these things are a form of governance aid. And so we connect to that. Now, what makes our study different is that we look at a competitive mechanism. So when these local governments want to get aid, um, the allocation of that aid is not predetermined. It is not that they receive a sum of money, a certain sum that is predetermined. They have to apply for that aid. They have to submit a project and that is evaluated based on its merits. So it's a selective application mechanism and we think that this kind of mechanism really incentivizes the building of additional state capacity and makes it different from a lot of other types of foreign aid or development aid that is allocated. Because I think it was really interesting uh, when I read your paper, you, you kind of defined mm -hmm. state capacity as an ability to discriminate or, or discern yes. amongst different kind of projects. Yes. And more broadly, what I should say is 
we so we send an inquiry and we look at their their response behavior right and in overall this is supplying information to third parties right they give us information and this is opposed to traditional concepts of state capacity traditionally state capacity has often focused on the coercive abilities of the state the ability to extract tax revenues and this is related to Max Weber's definition of the state as having the monopoly on violence within a certain territory right but we think that in the present day this definition is a little bit outdated in the sense that it cannot really help us to explain the vast differences across developed states who all have relatively high coercive capacity but they have very different information provision and discrimination capacities so that is why you incorporated this new uh, quote-unquote measurement mm-hmm. uh, 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 using the, the ability to discriminate against yeah, yeah. and okay. to respond in general that, that, that mm-hmm. totally makes sense yeah uh, a more technical question. Um, yeah. How and over what period of time did you develop these research techniques and strategies and how did you implement them in Poland and in other places? Right. So the, the kind of research I do depends on different research research strategies. Um, what, what I do in some of my papers is I use natural experiments. I'm not sure if you've heard this term before. So what this refers to is that in reality we find something that we would call quasi-random. And what we mean by that is that it, it's, it's a kind of arbitrary in some sense where a cutoff is placed. And what I mean by a cutoff is that some units, some units we look at are treated in a certain way, others are treated in another way, but the way it has been determined whether or not they are treated in a certain way is not predetermined in a very systematic fashion, right? And one of my research projects looks also at Poland from a completely different perspective where I look at um, the three historical empires that ruled Poland in the 19th century, and I look at whether across the old borders of those empires, which were, as I argue in this paper, imposed in this quasi-random fashion, and I can go into more detail as to why that was the case, but I look at whether there are differences in bureaucratic organization across these boundaries. And so I use different techniques. Another another technique I use in, in some of my research projects so-called instrumental variable designs. These are all designs that are meant to approximate the randomness of a real experiment. And very often in reality, we cannot get to that ideal, so we try to approximate it. So with the validity of Mm -hmm. your research and your results and the way they're presented being increased by the method of natural experimentation, Mm -hmm. um, how does this coordinate with the other contributions to this field that are compatible with your research and those that are not compatible? So here's one thing that I, that I need to mention is that the external validity I would not necessarily say is very high because the case of Poland is very specific. Um, there, there was no other country in the world that was ruled by Austria-Hungary, by Prussia and by Russia at the same time. And there are a lot of other countries in the world that were maybe ruled by the French or by the British. So in these cases, you would think that maybe their effect is a little bit more homogenous across different territories. So when looking at cases like these, uh, we would say the external validity is a little bit higher. In this case, what I say is, in the case of Poland, there was uh, left there were left over informal institutions, not formal institutions, but even even these informal institutions had a very significant long term impact. So, if even informal institutions that are not supported by a formal network of institutions can have this long run impact, then we would expect that the impact is even stronger when you have formal and informal institutions in place. So, that's an important implication of this study.
You guys are getting really technical here. <laughs> it's, it's, it's great that you asked the question about internal external validity mm-hmm. uh, because I'm, I'm, I study economics and uh, and econometrics, and we sometimes talk about you know using you mentioned instru- instrumental variable IVs and um, and I know in development economics there mm-hmm. are a lot of stuff about randomized control trials, and we actually just had a whole conference on uh, development finance in fragile states and. Uh, randomized control trials; those RCTs are yeah. often used to, you know, measure the success yeah. of certain programs. Yeah. But uh, so, so it seems that in the field of economics, and at least in development econ- economics, there's sort of been this wave and this push of using those new um, tools. Right. Uh, so, so in political science, in the study of political economy, would you say that the fact that you, you're using natural experiments or, um, you know, looking at those things in a quasi-random fashion? Mm-hmm. Is this something really innovative right now, or has the field widely been accepting this kind of? So this is kind of the standard in the field right now. Um, RCTs are still the gold standard, and and we try to approximate that gold standard. But it's also very intensive um, thing to do. So you need a lot of money to do these kinds of experiments. And they also are limited to a certain set of questions, right? Sometimes the questions that I'm interested in are at a scale, they are at a level of aggregation where it is often not possible, not feasible to use an RCT. So in these cases, uh, what you're left with are these methods that approximate experiments. Yeah, yeah, that totally makes sense. If I may switch gears a little bit, Jan, mm-hmm. uh, to move away from the more technical sides of your research. A lot of your research that both Tiger and I studied before and that we've discussed a little bit is has to do with the legacies of imperialism and right. colonialism on the structure and functions of public administrations today. So what, in your mind, are some of the most important modern-day implications of these ideas? So a really fascinating thing that I find in my studies is that even when empires have disintegrated 100 years ago, we still see in the present day that there are some legacies of those empires in terms of organization of bureaucracies. And what that tells us is that bureaucracies are highly path-dependent in terms of their organization. And we have to ask ourselves, why is that the case? And I try to come up with different explanations for why that is the case. But in general, we might want to think about how can we make bureaucracies more efficient and maybe also how can we reform them in ways that they lose some of that path dependence because certainly maybe there are some positive effects of having a hundred year old legacy, but there are also certainly some negative effects. And that is what I find in the case of Poland, that in the eastern parts of Poland, there are negative effects on meritocracy and efficiency. And this is probably also true for a lot of other countries in the world that were ruled by different empires, uh, the British Empire, the French Empire. They left bureaucratic legacies also in informal institutions, as I indicated. And so we have to carefully think about which part of these legacies do we actually still want to be intact and which other ones do we want to get rid of and how can we reform bureaucracies? Could you be a little bit more specific for Mm -hmm. our listeners about path dependency and bureaucracies and how specifically this comes from the legacy of colonialism? Yeah. So what I think in the case, I'll specifically talk about the case of Poland because that's the case I'm most familiar with, right? So historically, the three empires that ruled Poland had very different ways in which they treated the citizens. The Russian Empire was highly corrupt and its local institutions extracted a lot of wealth from the population. If you resisted against that, what happened was that you were either thrown into prison or transported to Siberia. And Austria and Prussia 
also were foreign occupiers, but in general they were seen as much more benign foreign occupiers. And in the following sense, Prussia had a bureaucracy that excluded Poles to a large extent, only few Poles worked there, but it was seen as relatively reliable and sticking to its own rules. So it was it was a foreign bureaucracy, but it was also seen as having this high level of reliability. And Austria, after 1867, allowed for a greater participation of the Poles in, in administration, and so they appreciated that degree of uh, a slightly higher degree of autonomy. And what, what this did, I think it fundamentally sh shaped the perceptions of the state, it fundamentally shaped state-citizen interactions, and what that meant in the long run was that the way people viewed the state had, had a big impact on whether they would work at the state, whether they would apply to state positions, whether qualified applicants would work there. And in the long run, that means if you have very qualified applicants who work for the state and they see the state very positively, as there's a high level of prestige working in the state, that contributes to the state being more efficient because it has these competent people working there. That reminds me when I took uh, intro to comparative politics uh, when I was a sophomore, uh, we talked about how, you know, Britain's colonialism left a, you mm -hmm. know, very bad legacy for mm -hmm. India. Mm -hmm. But one could argue that India's democracy wouldn't have mm -hmm. succeeded as quickly and be established as quickly in that short period of, of time without the colonialist kind of legacy. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I, I think it's a really tough but interesting question. So how do you, when you look at those questions about yeah. legacies yeah. of you know colonial rule yeah. um, or institutions that seem to have left yeah bad parts of history how, how do you make judgments about those issues so it's it's very difficult to make conclusive or final judgments right i see myself as participating in a broader debate on these colonial legacies but when you mention a case like india for example there's also a lot of research that looks at heterogeneous effects within india some parts of india were directly ruled some were indirectly ruled so in some parts the british left the original rulers in place and they just uh, maybe asked them to pay some taxes some tributes right and there are some researchers to look at if that has long-term consequences, right? So what the discipline is moving towards is to look more closely at heterogeneity in many different ways, spatial heterogeneity, heterogeneity over time. So we get into more details and we do not think that you can make a black and white judgment, right? Not everything is good, not everything is bad. You have to look more precisely at the case and you have to look more precisely at the conditions on the ground. So, and just another quick follow-up about that issue. So going back to Poland, where you're most familiar with, mm -hmm. so you mentioned how Russia was very corrupt. Yes. Austria and Prussia were arguably much more benign, and mm -hmm. they allowed for greater participation. They, they gradually started encouraging more Polish yeah. people. Austria to, in particular. Austria in yeah. particular. Uh, so when you look at, when you compare those three mm -hmm. regimes mm -hmm. and their subsequent sort of impact on the country, are there any greater lessons that you extract from it and you say, oh, maybe those are some of the things uh, that a bigger empire right. would be able to do for a smaller right. region? Yeah. So in general, one thing, I, one lesson we can draw from this is that foreign rule in general, if you impose regimes on a people that doesn't want them, right, 
that will almost always have some negative consequences, right? But the closer you are to letting them self-determine their fate, right? The closer you are to giving people on the ground a say in what is going on. So you need some form of decentralization to gain that level of appreciation that the Poles had, right? Now, they rejected foreign rule in general, but there was still a difference in the degree to which they rejected it. And certainly they rejected the Russian rule the most. Interesting, because we, we also just, uh, I was talking to you about our annual conference a couple of weeks ago, um, mm-hmm. Development Finance in Fragile States, and we talked about in, in the context of fragile states, mm-hmm. state capacity was very, very weak. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you talked about, you know, Max Weber's uh, definition yes. of, you know, being able to tax the citizens and yes. uh, sort of the more traditional way of looking at state capacity. And even with that definition, some of those states uh, in underdeveloped countries don't really have that state capacity. Absolutely. So a lot of people argue that in that context, you would need a lot of intervention. Uh, so that that's that's a big and debated question, right? I think there's no one-size-fits-all solution for that. There might be contexts where intervention could have negative effects. Um, the the European states, I think, had had the experience of building strong states, not in any way because of, of foreign intervention, right? They build it on the continent themselves, and that might be the most sustainable way. Whenever you intervene as a foreign power and try to build something, you have to ask yourself, is this sustainable in the long run. And what we have seen in many cases where Western powers intervened in different parts of the world and tried to establish something, a state that did not have the support from the people on the ground, that that was not sustainable in the long run, right? So maybe intervention can stabilize some region, some fragile state for a short period of time, but you can never do it without support from the people who actually live there. And uh, to add on to that point, I completely agree. And I think it's also something we haven't really touched upon. It's always important to remember many of the horrific aspects and legacies of colonialism that Mm -hmm. still exist today um, with the constant racial determination and enslavement of people. Um, Yes. Also, it just reminds me of the whole, you know, Bernie Sanders. I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people right now, what's really being talked about is how Bernie Sanders went on national television. He basically said, I mean, not everything Fidel Castro did for Cuba was bad. And um, he still brought free healthcare, the, the literacy w- rate went up, but a lot of people would say, yeah, yes. but he also imprisoned people. And yes. Bernie said, yeah, sure. Yeah. But not par- all parts of yeah. authoritarian regimes are raw. So it, yeah. it seems that when it comes to those technical and nuanced arguments, uh, you have one side of people who are being a little bit more technical and say, yes. let's look at the you know different effects. But there are also other people who say, um, I just, I just yes. don't really yeah. want that. And I think it's undeniable that especially outside of Europe, imperialism had devastating consequences for a lot of the peoples that were ruled by European powers, right? And so they were often not treated as the equivalents of the Europeans, right? They said like, oh, they are racially inferior. And that was the way they legitimized their very brutal actions against those people. And we always have to keep that in mind when we talk about colonialism or imperialism. Completely agree. And a slightly quickly more perhaps personal question, do you feel that in the sort of minds and spirits of 
both the citizens of the EU and the governments mm. themselves, that is a present enough thought? Or I absolutely think so. And I, I think that there's a very critical discourse within Europe. Certainly it is true for Germany that Germans think a lot about the past, right? I think uh, we are very critical about our own past. And I think that is a very good thing, right? We critically reflect on different aspects of our past, including a period of colonialism before World War One, where Germany had very negative effects on countries in Africa, for example. Absolutely. There oftentimes, uh, to me personally, appears to be sort of a dichotomy, especially with the um, other countries in the EU, mm -hmm. not Germany, mm -hmm. about these countries at the same time mm -hmm. were fighting against the Nazis, some of them, which is obviously right. um, what needed to be done, fighting against that horrible genocide. But at the same time, in this so-called scramble for Africa, they were terrorizing and committing genocide against entire racial and ethnic groups. So yes. it's important to acknowledge both sides of that, I believe. Yeah. Uh, to move on to another aspect of the EU, you've written a lot about Euroscepticism and right. the idea that perhaps as the average EU citizen does not have a lot of personal exposure to the bureaucracy of the European Union and how it functions, yeah. their perceptions are shaped more by their own domestic and personal experiences. So what effect do you think this has on your skepticism right. and how it's progressing? So here's an important thing I, I should say. The EU is very often portrayed as this bureaucratic monster that sits on top of the nation states, right? But the truth is that the EU bureaucracy is actually tiny. Um, there are only approximately 50 to 60,000 people working for the European Union at the central level. Now, the EU has more than 500 million people. If you compare that to the United States, the United States has fewer people, it has 300 million people, but its bureaucracy has more than 2 million employees, right, at the federal level. So you see a big, big difference in the size of the central bureaucracy. But very often when critics attack the EU, they say it's a form of technocratic governance, and they especially highlight the bureaucracy that comes with the EU. And what I wanted to figure out is if the EU bureaucracy is in truth this small, right? If it is this small, how do citizens form these very strong opinions of the European Union? So they have never met a European Union bureaucrat in their life, right? How do they make this strong judgment? And I found, so I did a study in Romania where I asked citizens, what do you think about the European Union bureaucracy? But I also asked them, what do you think about your own bureaucracy? And the reason why I asked them about their own bureaucracy at the central and at the local level was that I thought they use heuristics. And what I mean by heuristics are mental shortcuts. So they know a bureaucracy that is close to them. They know the local public administration. They know the central one. And they have a certain image of how corrupt they are. They have a certain image of, uh, you know, how negatively they view them. And then they take that image and they transfer it to the European Union and say, well, that's also a bureaucracy. And it's further away from me, right? So if anything, it is worse than the bureaucracy that I already know, right? But it's probably similarly corrupt, right? And so I do think that that has an impact because that creates this trust, right? It's it's an institution that is very far away. And, and one thing that I should also add is one conclusion that I come to in this paper is that we need to educate citizens about the European Union more comprehensively. We need to make sure that in school they learn facts of the European Union and they need to become more familiar with it because it's really this low level familiarity with the institutions of the EU that makes people skeptical, that makes them, you know, that alienates them from the European Union, that contributes to Euroscepticism. Absolutely. Um, at being educated in the European Union myself, I can speak to that. One thing I was going to ask specifically about the comments you just made um, in regards to Romania, how do you think the, again, if we were talking about the specificity of Poland and being a part of both the Prussian and Austro-Hungarian Empire, how do you think um, Romania 
living under the rule of the USSR affects the view of the European Union today. Yeah, so that could have a negative impact. That is not the specific question that I look at, but certainly they have some negative experiences with other countries dominating them, right? But what I should also say is that in many of these Eastern European countries, there was a very strong desire after the fall of the Soviet Union to join the European Union, right? So it is clear, I think, that they do not say the European Union is the equivalent of the Soviet Union. Now, some politicians in those countries might use the Soviet Union and might try to create that image that the EU is similar. But I think that historically, that is not, first of all, it's not an accurate uh, comparison, but more importantly, the, they wanted to join the European Union because it was it was a promise of having greater, greater prosperity, access to the common market, right, freedom of movement. There were a lot of positive beneficial effects of joining the European Union. So what isn't working right now? I mean, in the European Union. Yeah. Why yeah. is there so much right. skepticism and critique of the system? Because a lot of people yeah. argue yeah. that you, you you simply cannot create this supranational structure when yeah. national interests are yeah. not aligned. Yeah. So first of all, there is some interest compatibility, right? The European countries have realized that when they trade with each other, when they have freedom of exchange, right, when they have freedom of movement, freedom of uh, services across the the continent that has a very positive impact on the economies right and so it, it contributes to their prosperity there are some incentives in which um, creating maintaining the European Union that works for everyone who is participating in that at the same time and this is also related to a topic that we might talk about um, after this um, I portray the European Union as a polycentric system of governance and that means it is a system it's a little bit more patchwork system in the sense that it is an imperfect system it emerges organically from historical experience it is not always designed in a flawless way right it's not one central decision maker that makes a decision and then the system is created but this is also because the European Union is so heterogeneous right so Europeans have a lot in common and they have certain common interests but what you also have to acknowledge is that the conditions across Europe are very different in terms of culture in terms of language in terms of climatic conditions socio-economic living standards the conditions are so vastly different that this will also create some differences in interests and you have to ask yourself what system of governance can be used to govern such a complex array of different people's countries. So Jan, what do you think some of the most important differences between European and the United States governments are? So I think the most important difference between the political systems of most European countries and the United States political system is that European systems usually have a proportional representation as the way they determine the winner of elections, while the United States has a um, winner-takes-all majoritarian electoral system. And these majoritarian electoral systems lead very often to a two-party system in which there are two big camps because only one side can win. You have a convergence on two different major camps. Now, here's the downside of this. In the European political context where you have many different parties and none of them has an absolute majority, you often force those parties to enter coalition governments. And very often you do not want as a party, when you are subject to this requirement of entering a coalition, you do not want to completely determine what kind of a, a government you will enter after the election. Sometimes parties do that, but very often they leave it open. And by having that flexibility of joining coalition with different 
other parties, the benefit that we'll have is it creates a culture of cooperation in the system, right? In the American political system, what you see, especially in the present day, is that sometimes parties will demonize the other side and they will say, oh, this side, you know, we really cannot work together with their evil. And they do that to get more voters vote for them, right? They portray them as the worst possible and then uh, re decrease the number of people who vote for the other side. In the European system, eventually you have to work together with the other parties. And when you do that, you cannot say, oh, they are evil, right? Because in the end, you will have to work together with them, right? And so I think that this political culture that emerges from this difference is a key um, distinct aspect between Europe and the United States. And I think it's very difficult to reform this in the United States because I think that the United States will remain a majoritarian political system. So it is really up to the politicians not to demonize the other side. It is really up to the politicians to look uh, to create a political culture um, in which you respect the other side as a legitimate competitor. This is very difficult because sometimes it is against their own self-interest in terms of mobilizing their voters. But it, it also can have devastatingly negative consequences for democracy if you constantly demonize the other side. Um, that totally makes sense. Uh, and, and I know you've talked about a lot about the, the, the I guess, ground level bureaucracy mm -hmm. and people's kind of image mm -hmm. uh, about the, the EU and sort of extrapolating their own understanding of the local bureaucracy onto the EU level, which is kind of an irrational way of looking at things. Uh, and obviously that's kind of mixed in with populism sentiments and misinformation that kind of makes um, the situation worse. But any reforms that you have in mind in terms of uh, whether whether we could improve the system or the system will eventually have to... Do you mean the European Union as a whole? Yeah. So I think this is also related. I think, you know, I cannot be this central decision maker who can say this is the right way to go. Now, I think that one central weakness of the European Union is that currently it does not have a common fiscal policy. It does have a common um, monetar monetary policy right through the European Central Bank and it has a common currency. And a lot of people now see it as one major weakness that there is so little coordination and centralization in terms of fiscal policies. But that would be a step that would probably be against the interest of some key member states like Germany has opposed the centralized fiscal policy for a long time. So I think it is very difficult for me to say I'm the centralized decision maker and I will tell you what you have to do as long as it contradicts the fundamental interests of some of the most important member states. This will not be implemented in practice, right? I think the conclusion that I come to in, in, in my contribution on polycentrism and the EU is the European Union is a polycentric system and these systems of governance are imperfect, but maybe they are the best that we can get if we look at uh, something so complex and so diverse as Europe. But why, don't, why can't we just get rid of it? <laughs> that, okay. uh, I mean, I, I, I suppose so. I, I'm not saying in, a, in an yeah. ignorant yeah. Uh, way yeah. because I, I mean, you mentioned the sort of the dissonance between right. monetary, um, uh, uh, I guess, the yeah. monetary system yeah. and the fiscal system. And I think there are yeah. a lot of literature written about yeah. it, including Princeton professor Shoka Modi, who yeah. wrote Euro Tragedy, sort of arguing yeah. by construction this European yeah. Union idea might not work out at all. So, yeah. I mean, one could perfectly it's a perfectly reasonable argument to say maybe this yeah. experiment we just failed yeah so I would not go as far and I would say for many different reasons so first of all if we look at European history what we see is that before the European Union was created initially as the European economic community or the European community of coal and steel um, before that happened there were 
centuries of wars, right? Ongoing wars. And those wars reached a level of intensity um, that was really had a climax in World War II where dozens of millions of people died, right? And so the lesson from that was we need some form of cooperation, right? And certainly I think that from the beginning it was clear to most countries and most people, politicians who participated in that, that that would be an imperfect cooperation. When you have diverging interests, it's difficult to find a common denominator and sometimes you have to work with the smallest common denominator, right? But even the smallest common denominator is better than having continuous wars, right? So in that sense, I think the European Union has prevented war in Europe for 70 years and in that sense, it is a tremendous success, right? There are ups and downs in economic terms, but its key function was to prevent another major European war from occurring. And in that, it has been very successful. The question uh, we have to ask, what is your take on Brexit and mm -hmm. what do you think the longer term consequences will be? Yeah. So I, I think that Brexit was a big mistake. And for the following reason, um, you cannot stop globalization. And by exiting a, 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 an institution like the European Union, you make yourself weaker in a world in which the European Union was one of the major economic powers. The European Union as a whole is a, is, is a giant economy, um, the, se the second largest in the world. And so it has a lot of power, for example, when negotiating with other countries. The European Union has a lot of free trade agreements or trade agreements, not necessarily free trade agreements, but a lot of trade agreements with countries around the world. And one of the promise that the people made who advanced Brexit was that it would lead to a global Britain, right? It would lead to Britain being able to determine its own fate in terms of trade. But Britain is in a much weaker bargaining position uh, compared to the rest of the world. And here's something important too. They, when they left the European Union initially, they did not have a lot of expertise in terms of um, creating trade, trade agreements. And the reason was that all of that responsibility was at the EU level, right? So you had a lot of trade experts at the EU level. But for more than 30 years, uh, more than 40 years close to, um, Britain had not negotiated any of its own trade agreements. And so they had to start over from scratch, right? And now it looks like Scotland might leave Britain, right? It could lead to the reunification of Ireland is what some people have speculated. I think overall Brexit has very severely weakened the position of Britain in the world and I think that, that for that reason it was a big mistake. You cannot stop globalization by withdrawing from it. You hurt your own wealth and so I think overall it, it was a big mistake. Earlier, you also touched upon the fact um, that there may be some misconceptions about the European Union and how it functions and what percentage of the European population it actually consists of. Do mm -hmm. you think that the people of Britain would have voted Remain had there been a more consistent level of education about the European Union and how it actually functions? So I think that education is not, doesn't, is the, isn't the only thing here. I think that is also the responsibility of politicians. And what, what happened was that in the campaign for Brexit, a lot of promises were made that turned out to be very unrealistic. And one of them is the one about global Britain and its ability to negotiate new trade agreements. I think that most of these promises were a little bit over the top, right? So there, there were promises that everything would be wonderful uh, and that, that Britain would 
gain a lot of money that it was spending on the EU. It would it would not have to do that. But what was not recognized was that it would also mean the loss of all the benefits that coming with being an EU member, right? So you have to pay to be a member of this club, but you do like to pay because you get a lot out of it, right? And so many politicians misled the public, I believe, and tried to convince them that things would look a lot better than they, I think, eventually will. We have to see if that if that plays out this way, but I'm convinced that it will have an overall negative effect on Britain. That, that, that totally makes sense. Uh, I also want to, before we end the interview, want to pivot a little bit about this very interesting subject matter mm -hmm. that, that, that I read about. Uh, you're working on a study of the political economy of the Third Reich. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, what got you into the subject matter? What are some of the findings right. you've had so far? So I grew up in Germany, right? And we view our own history very critically. I think that's a very important thing, right? When you go to school in Germany, you learn about the Third Reich and you learn a lot about it, right? So I was exposed to this topic a lot. And I think that the Third Reich only existed for about 12 years, but within that time period, that was absolutely devastating for the European continent. The Third Reich did a lot of damage, and of course it was responsible for wars, for war crimes, it was responsible for the Holocaust, right? So this is a subject of great historical significance, and I think we need to understand how was it possible that in a civilized country like Germany, where you had a lot of highly educated people, the Nazis could come to power and turn Germany into this into this into this country that was responsible for all of these crimes, right? And so for me, um, this has always been of interest. And sadly, it is not just of historical relevance, right? Because we see a lot of the components of the Nazi ideology re-emerge. So Nazi ideology is built on a couple of different pillars. One of them is nationalism and a very extreme aggressive form of nationalism. It is also built on anti-Semitism, racism. And so what you see is that certain aspects, certain components of the Nazi ideology become stronger even in the present day. And that could be a threat to our democracies. And we have to think very carefully about the past. We have to understand the past very accurately and we have to try to prevent that from happening again. And now um, I have studied this topic in much detail. I've thought about even writing a book about it. I am not there yet, but I thought that one of the areas where I can connect my expertise in political economy to this historical subject is to write a paper on the political economy of the Third Reich. And I wanted to especially ask what kind of political economic system was the Third Reich. And some people suggest uh, that the Nazis were a socialist party, right? And notice that they have national socialism in the name, right? Um, I do not think that is a correct perception of history, right? Um, but what I wanted to look at was how did they organize the economy on the spectrum between a full capitalist economy and a full socialist economy? Where can we place the Third Reich? And I thought it would be a really interesting question to look at. I mean, you, one could argue that it's a very extreme version of political economy where, uh, I mean, you, you got the absolute, the more on the free market lens. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I mean, sorry, I, I need to rephrase this. So I was just interviewing Branko Milanovic, who is sort of the, this guy who wrote this book, right. Capitalism Alone, and he yes. uh, talked about sort of the why capitalism has kind of, we only see one form of capitalism right now, oh, one or two forms of capitalism. One is the uh, meritocratic one that you see in the West, and the other one is sort of the more political one you see right, in China. Right. And and one could argue that the Nazi ones were even on the further extreme of of uh, authoritarianism and and 
Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So I look at uh, the difference between capitalism and socialism, where I say that capitalism has certain features such as private property and supply and demand uh, leading to the price level and also leading to the allocation of resources and then internal firm decision making and inter-firm collaboration to what extent that was guided by the market or by free decision making or the state. And I overall, I find that uh, Nazi Germany had a hybrid economy in which it combined some elements of capitalism, such as private ownership but also freedom of contract and a lot of internal decision-making of firms was still free but the state still guided the firms guided resources not necessarily in terms of the internal decision-making but it set goals for them and they had to meet those goals and then overall later on as the war went on um, they interfered more and more in the economy but that was also related to the requirements of the war thank you so much Jan and before we uh, resume um, other questions in regard to the European Union, we wanted to ask a few more personal questions. Sure. So um, in the United States, especially as someone not originally from the United States, having grown up in Germany, it's definitely an interesting time to be studying politics. Absolutely. Uh, given yesterday, Super Tuesday. So as someone who studies this phenomenon, what are your main takeaways from the process as you watch it play out? And what do you think might be missing from yeah. American political debates? So it's a fascinating process. And one thing I need to tell you is that in Germany, the election process is a much shorter one, also the campaigns. And I think that there are benefits and downsides to both ways, right? I I think one positive side of having such a long process is that it really energizes people, right? At least some people who, uh, who are highly politically interested, they like to follow it. I certainly like to follow it. I like to inform myself about it. But what you also see, and you see it when you look at the numbers on advertisement spending, is that this process is enormously costly. Um, that a lot of resources are used in this process that could be used for completely different, maybe better purposes than finding out uh, who the next president is if there is a more efficient way of doing that, right? And so one of the ways how that could be done in Europe, in Germany specifically, um, TV stations are required by law to air the ads of political parties and each party gets allocated a certain time. So no one has to spend these ex extreme sums of money also, parties do get some support from the state in the first place to run campaigns. So no one is dependent on getting donors, right? And so if you remove that necessity of getting donor funding, then what that might mean is that you have less influence of special interest groups in politics, right? So I do think this is a fascinating process that has its upsides. It's certainly very entertaining, right? I mean, you, 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 if you are into politics, you probably watch all the debates and you learn a lot about the positions of the different politicians and there's a benefit to that, but it's also a process that, va that wastes a lot of resources that might be spent in a different way. Yeah, I, I know we're sort of coming to an end of the, uh, the, as the interview mm -hmm. because I know you have to go soon. Mm -hmm. um, I'm very curious because when you study political, you've studied in Germany, you've studied in That's the right. UK, you've studied here in the US. Right. Uh, how are political science taught sort of differently among those yeah. uh, countries? Uh, which, which way do you like the, yeah. the best? So one thing that you, might not be surprising to you is that in all of these countries, their own political system is very prominent, right? So Germans like to study German politics, and that's always a core course and core requirement. And that is not a requirement at all in, in the United States, while American politics is extremely prominent here. But something that might be a little more surprising is that in the United States the methodology the toolkit that political scientists use is a very different one in Germany most of the political scientists there use qualitative methods and in the United States quantitative methods are right now 
um, the absolute number one in terms of application. Um, now, one one thing I should say is that I actually like both of these methods. I think, though, that I do not want to limit myself to one of these toolkits. And I thought this is one of the reasons why I came to the United States um, is that I wanted to acquire that specific toolkit and have the ability to produce rigorous quantitative studies. And I think that in many cases, if I had stayed in Germany and at many places, I could not have done that. That is one of the reasons why I came here. I think it's it's really interesting when you were talking about um, uh, the German uh, sort of elections and how they assign the TV slots and everything. Right. It just seemed to be like a much better way of doing politics than, than the U.S. And right. I think as as Bailey helps us to expand this European segment, she'll basically just be bringing European scholars and then give America advice on how America can right. do better about everything. Right. Uh, well, so this is great. I, I, one thing I should add is that America also has a lot to be proud about, right? I mean, it is the longest stable democracy in the world. And there are certainly a lot of features of the American political system that are admirable. And I think it's, for example, the right to free speech that is seen as a very high ideal here. It is the uh, checks and balances that and the framers of the Constitution, they put a lot of thought into it and you can see it play out. I mean, the system has survived for a very long time. But I think what Americans need to be a little bit better at is to recognize the weaknesses and the downsides of the system of government and to think about ways how it can be reformed to uh, minimize those downsides and weaknesses. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's a great note to, to end the interview on. I, and I, was, I, th I think at the end, we always ask our guest, because the name mm -hmm. of our show is Policy Punchline, yeah. what is your punchline here for yeah. uh, the political yeah. economy? For yeah. So I think that with respect to political economy, we need to understand history. And I think that one of the, in, the main insight that I've gained from much of my studies is that a lot of the things we observe in the present day we need to go back in history to look at where did they come from. We need to explore the deep roots. A lot of things are path dependent. And it's not only the things that I study. It's not only public institutions. It's also culture. It's informal institutions. It's how we treat each other. A lot of things are shaped by history. And I think we need to understand history to understand the present day. That is the punchline of today's interview, I think. I think that's a great note to, to end our interview on. I mean, we talked so much, I mean, from uh, Max Weber, the state capacity, to uh, your research in Poland, to the political economy of EU, and we even talked about this very interesting idea of the political economy of the Third Reich and, yes. and how EU could reform and the lessons for the U.S. So thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah. 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 Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. I appreciate it. Of course. And Bailey, thanks so much for bringing on here. I mean, it's, 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 it's so nice. How's your... Uh, First time co-hosting the show at Pause Punchline. It's been great. Looking forward to doing it again, hopefully. And Jan, thank you so much. We really appreciate your expertise. This yes, is awesome. Thank you. Thanks so much. And this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Uh, please follow us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, uh, Stitcher, Google Play. Uh, visit us on policypunchline.com and uh, visit and review us. Thanks so much for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.